Life often can feel stormy, can feel wild, can feel out of control, overwhelming, at times scary. There are both storms outside going on around us and storms inside of us. You you can think of internal storms, those of you that may wrestle with ongoing temptation or fear or stress or anxiety or loneliness or battles against sin, but there's also what we could call external storms, you know, with the people and circumstances around us. And we think about storms and hardships and crisis and things that are out of control can be the result of a a wide range of of circumstances. And and just think about some of these areas and and the ones that you've dealt with, maybe the ones that you're in the midst of right now. Sometimes storms can be from broken relationships, a close friend maybe that cuts you off, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that that suddenly breaks up with you, or or maybe a marriage that ends in divorce after, after decades. Sometimes storms come not from other people, but just from the reality that we live in a broken world. Right? And, and, and you may have gotten a cancer diagnosis, or even worse, maybe someone you love has gotten a cancer diagnosis, or, or some other severe sickness, or maybe you battle with, with chronic pain, or maybe you or someone you know has dealt with a, a major accident or injury, or maybe you're facing financial ruin or, or a natural disaster. And these kinds of things can feel like wind and waves and rain and thunder and lightning, and it's too much and it's out of control. We deal with the storms of just loss. This is a world where we have so many good gifts from the Lord, and yet there's also loss that stirs up pain. Maybe a a close friend that moves away, children that leave the home. Maybe you've lost a job or lost a house or lost a loved one. And that loss just feels like an uncontrollable storm. But sometimes, again, those storms are internal, and you deal with your own sin. Just that internal struggle, and maybe it's an addiction an addiction to, to drugs or alcohol or pornography or any number of, of unhealthy habits. And yes, Christians and, and those in and around the church struggle with these areas. Maybe for you, the storm of your internal struggle is, is immorality, sexual immorality, a temptation, or maybe it's, it's a habit of lying or stealing or, or maybe angry, violent behavior. And, and we have these sins that feel out of control, but other times it's not, it's not our own sin that causes that internal storm. It's, it's the sin of others that have sinned against us. And maybe you have been cheated on in your marriage, or maybe you've been physically or emotionally abused or mistreated, or, or in society you find yourself oppressed. And again, it, it can feel like just the wind and the waves are blowing and pounding it, and you have no hope and no, and no light in the midst of the dark storm. But this morning, we're going to see the Lord Jesus is one who comes into our storms and brings peace. He calms the storm. And that's what we're going to read about this morning as we continue in our series in Mark's gospel. We're looking at specifically Mark's interactions to to make disciples. And part of making disciples is that he comes into our lives and brings calm and brings peace in the midst of the storm. And sometimes that means the storm is abolished, as we'll read this morning. Sometimes it means that, that God comes close and rides with you in the midst of of what may feel like chaos. We looked last week at Mark chapter 3. We're going to pick up this morning in Mark chapter 4, all the way in verse 35, page 839 in one of those back hardback Bibles. We're going to kind of skip over the beginning of the chapter. You see there, if you're opening up your text, the beginning of the chapter is a, a section of Jesus teaching, teaching in parables. He often taught in parables, these analogies, and, and, and often he taught this way, not to make things more understandable, 
but to do this. Those that came to him to hear him who had open hearts, they would understand the principles of the kingdom that he was expressing in these stories. But those in the crowd that were there for the wrong reasons, or those who were enemies of God, would not understand these stories, would not understand these parables. And so it was a way for God to teach his disciples even in the midst of a mixed crowd. And so if you glance over chapter 4, you'll see that he expresses how the gospel and the kingdom of God is like a seed that falls on different kinds of soil. And not everybody would receive his word. Not everybody would understand his word in the crowd. But for some who had good soil, the, the seed would take root in their hearts. He goes on to tell a parable about how a seed that takes root is like a farmer that plants a seed and that seed grows gradually and slowly without the farmer's real knowledge of exactly how it's happening. But day by day, the Word of God takes root in our hearts and grows. He compares the kingdom of God to the smallest seed on all the earth. He says, but once it takes root and once it grows, it becomes tall, it becomes strong, and the kingdom of God has massive impact both in your life and in the world around you. And so he tells all these stories, and if you read at the end in verse 33, as we heard last week, Jesus gathers together his closest apostles and disciples, and he then explains to them everything that he's just taught. Because he's interested, remember, not just in gathering the big crowds, but in training and making disciples. And so after he privately explains to them the meaning of these parables, we're going to pick up in verse 35. It's the end of the day. It's a long day. As we'll read, Jesus is exhausted, right? Because teaching all day and hundreds of people in the open weather was exhausting. And so he's exhausted. He wants to steal away with his closest disciples, apostles, and get away from the crowd and have time together alone with them. And this is what happens. Pick up with me in Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with him, they, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Powerful, powerful story. I know many of you have heard it. Let's take a few minutes and unpack it, and then we'll jump into the rest of chapter 5 and read uh, another section uh, about another different kind of storm. But again, picture this. The disciples, the, probably Jesus and the 12 apostles, get into a boat. Uh, uh, it was likely a fishing vessel at the time. Remember, four of his apostles are fishermen. A fishing vessel at that time would have been about 25 feet long, about 8 feet wide, would have been made to carry a dozen or so men. Right? Four of them are experienced uh, on the water, so this trip is no big deal, except for the fact that a storm's coming. Right Now, you say, why would they get into a boat if a storm was coming? Well, the geography around the Sea of Galilee was such that, that storms could move in without any warning. 
You picture like a bowl. So the Sea of Galilee was like the bottom of the bowl. And rising around the sea were mountains and hills in every direction. And so storms could come up without you even seeing them, come up over the mountains. And, and within a few moments, what could be a calm, sunny day could turn into a violent storm as we see here. And so dark clouds roll in and the winds pick up and the rain starts and the water gets choppy and the waves are crashing over the bow of the boat. Now for some of you land lovers, you can't truly picture or imagine or feel what this is like. As, as, as you know, because I've shared before, I had the, the joy of growing up uh, on the Chesapeake Bay and, and spent many, many times uh, out on our dock and in our creek, but also in the Chesapeake Bay, which is a large body of water, the largest estuary in the world. And when you're in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay, particularly on a cloudy day, you can't even see land. And, and I have far too many stories to remember of coming home from Rock Hall or somewhere else on the, on the eastern shore back to our, our little shore house that we had, and a storm would rise up. And I, I have specific memory of, you know, this, I remember this one particular time, and my dad would have, you know, there was like a roof, he had some rain sides he could put up, sending me and my brother and my sister down into the cabin below, right, because the storm were coming. And, and, and the wind is churning. And just what's described here, right? And, 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 and the, the waves are at least crashing over the bow of the boat, right? Three, four foot white caps in the Chesapeake Bay and the thunder and the lightning, which is the worst place you want to be, right? Out in the middle of the water when there's lightning happening. And I can still remember my mom to this day, probably because she still does it from time to time. Andy! Andy! You know, she'd be crying out his name. And, and we'd be down below. But this one particular time when the storm was, was really bad and... I mean, as like a 10-year-old kid, there's some fun to it, right? The boat's, you know, rocking around and stuff like that. But I remember this one particular time that I was scared to death because we were towing a little dinghy back, and the dinghy had broke loose from the stern of the boat. And so my dad put the boat into neutral, and in the midst of the waves crashing and the wind blowing and the thunder and the lightning, my dad dives into the water to go swim after this dinghy, which in retrospect was maybe not the wisest decision. But at that point, I was up on the boat trying to throw out a line, trying to help him bring this boat back in. Friends, listen, if you've never been out on the open water in the midst of a violent storm, it is scary. You feel small. You feel tiny. It is overwhelming. It is a storm that you cannot control. And you are well aware that it would not take much for that boat to capsize. It would not take much for you to be in the water to be completely at the mercy of the storm. And that's what's happening. The boat is filling up. They're on the verge of sinking there on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are a complete wreck. They think they're about to drown. They think they're all going to die. Now, in the midst of this, where's Jesus? Is he at the helm steering? Is he bailing water? Is he on his knees praying? What, what is he doing? He's in the stern, which if you don't know, is the back of the boat, on a cushion, taking a nap right? Like, what in the world, Jesus, are you doing? I mean, first of all, in the midst of this violent, life-threatening storm, how could he even be asleep, right? But this is a man, the Son of God, Son of Man, who is so fully at peace, resting in his heavenly Father, that he can take a nap after a hard days of work, even in the midst of this scene. And so in verse 38, they go and they wake him up, and I'm pretty sure that this was no gentle, like, excuse me, teacher, uh, we need your help, right? They're shaking him, I can imagine, Teacher, get up. What are you doing? Don't you care? We're going to die. Right? Now, it's interesting, and we'll come back to this in a few moments. It's both interesting and sad. Their assumption is Jesus doesn't care. 
Of course, he shows that he does. In verse 39, he wakes up, he rebukes the wind, and says to the sea, Peace, silence, be still. And, and we see here God, creator, in the flesh, on earth, commanding creation. Just as he spoke creation into existence, he now speaks, and creation obeys his word. And like telling a small child to be quiet, he says, stop, be quiet, and the storm obeys. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jesus turns to his followers in verse 40 and says to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, it may seem like Jesus is asking kind of a, an obvious question. Why are you so afraid? But, but listen, he's not asking them, what are you afraid of, right? They're, they're afraid in one sense of the terrible storm, their impending death, this uncontrollable situation. But he's not asking them, what are you afraid of? He didn't ask them that. He says, why are you afraid? It's a very, very different question, right? Because Jesus is getting at something. That their fear, listen, their fear ultimately did not come from the big storm. The fear that they had came from their small faith. What, what they were afraid of was very, very obvious. But why? Why in the midst of an uncontrollable storm, why are you so afraid? The disciples are floored. They're in awe. They're, they're really terrified at what they've just witnessed in verse 41 says that they are again filled with fear, not so much at the storm, but at the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And they say, who is this? Who is it that we are following? Even the wind and the sea obey his word. Now, as we've said, Jesus is slowly revealing his messianic identity, revealing that he's the son of God, revealing that he is God in the flesh. The disciples are still figuring it out. Now, most of these are good Hebrew Jewish boys, right? They know that the Old Testament makes it clear that only God has the ability to command the seas and the weather around them. And so they are thinking, wait a minute, how does this rabbi control the weather? Psalm 65 says that God stills the roaring of the seas, and Jesus is demonstrating, proving that he is God. Now, they they know that Jesus is, is from God. He's teaching about God. He's leading them to God. They know in some way he has the power of God, but they're still putting it all together that he, is fact, in fact, is the Son of God, Savior of the world. And they can't even process it. And even though the, the storm is quieted, they're now filled with fear, with reverence, with awe in the midst of in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus always has an impact on the storms of life. What, what are the things in your life right now that are stirring up fear? Maybe some of you this morning are not having to think back to another season of life. Maybe you right now are in the midst of something that is wild and uncontrollable. And maybe like the disciples, you're assuming, well, this storm is out of control and, and the worst is going to happen. And again, as we, as we talked earlier. Maybe, maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a close friend that cut you off or, or a, a significant other that's broken up with you. Or maybe it's a marriage that's in the process of ending. Maybe it's something going on that, that's related to cancer or a severe illness or you're dealing with chronic pain or a friend or family member's dealt with an accident or, or maybe you've suffered from financial ruin or, or maybe the storm for you is just getting caught up in political upheaval and social chaos. Maybe it's some kind of loss in your life. You know, all of these external factors swirling around, and sometimes through no fault of your own, you've lost a job, you've lost a dream, you've lost a loved one, you've lost a house. The storms of life often rage around us, and like the disciples, I think we often, too often assume, 
Well, if everything is out of control out here and there's this external storm going on and these circumstances around me, it must mean God doesn't care. You ever find yourself thinking that? He must no longer love me. He must no longer care about me. Sure, he exists. Sure, he's at work in other people's lives, but he must not care about me. Otherwise, why would I be in this little boat about to sink? If you look at this account, I hope it's clear to you that Jesus wasn't not acting because he didn't care. He wasn't acting because it wasn't yet time. But when the time was right, all God had to do was speak a word, peace, be still. Friends, listen, take heart. Those of you that are feeling overwhelmed, take heart. The Lord is there. He sees. He knows. And when the time is right, and I don't know when that is, and for, for many of us it's often longer than we would like before God will declare peace, be still. Whether you're hearing that word this morning, whether he's calming the external circumstances or whether he's just calming your own heart or whether you're still hanging on for dear life, please know that God does know you, he sees you, and he cares. And that was a big part of what I think the team accomplished last week. As I said, I had an opportunity two afternoons to go up and and work on Miss Laura's house. Here's a woman who has suffered from two different strokes. They finally realized she had some, some things going on neurologically. They did brain surgery on this woman to reroute some of, the, some of the blood vessels to prevent these strokes from happening again. She had been living with her sister. Her sister's family was expanding, so she had to move out, and she moved into this mobile home up in Dover that was in disrepair. And, and, and there, the floor was literally caving in. Praise God, it, it's back in, in good shape this morning. Now, there may have been other government agencies that could have helped her out, although she had gotten turned down from some other things, or maybe she could have gotten a donation from some other nonprofit in the area to have the work done. But, but God sent his people, sent us up there to care for this woman. And in addition to now having a, a trailer with, a, with a steps to go out the back and with a floor you know, that was stable and, and, and not literally in, in danger of, of falling through, In addition to that, I think one of the biggest things we accomplished is we sent a message to this woman. God sees you, God knows you, and God cares about you. He has not forgotten you. Because I'm nearly certain from the little bit that I talked and prayed with Laura, I am nearly certain that there are nights, there are days where she felt alone and abandoned and felt like maybe God doesn't care. See, listen, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your storm, What are you really afraid of? Is it the storm that's so bad, or is it your lack of faith, as it was for the disciples? Lack of faith in the love of God, lack of faith in the power of God, lack of faith in the purpose of God, even in the midst of the storm, trusting a God who has a purpose certainly beyond your ability to see, but a purpose that is greater than your ability to imagine. I think of this, this woman from years ago, this woman named Betsy, and, and her husband, I think, had passed out or something at work, went into the hospital, got some tasks, tests, and found out that her husband, Rob, had been born with a, a heart defect, had been born with a, some kind of valve or something. I don't know. My wife could explain the, the, the medical part of it. But, but, and the doctors said to them, look, there are people who have this particular heart defect that go their entire life and, and never have any, any uh, issues or any, any repercussions from this heart defect. Other people simply drop dead with, with no prior warning. And now this, this young mom who's got three little kids with this husband is dealing with this massive fear. 
right? It's nothing that the doctors were able to surgically correct. It was, it was a defect. It, he might live the rest of his life fine or he might not. And I remember her telling the story of her sharing this with her mother, a, a, a strong Christian woman. And, and Betsy at that point was nearly debilitated by this fear of what if she lost her husband. And I, and I remember her telling this, and I don't know if this is going to be helpful to you guys or not, but I, this has stuck out to me. And her mom said, well, what's your biggest fear? She said, what, what do you mean, what's my, that my husband will die? And, and her mom said to her, okay, and then what? what? What do you mean, and then what would happen after that? Well, I don't know, I guess we'd have to plan a funeral. That's right, and your father and I would help you, and the church would come around you, and then what? Well, I don't know, I guess I'd have to find some income and, and, and maybe go to work. And she said, that's right, and, and your father and I will help you with t- take care of the kids, and your church family will come around you. She said, and then what? She said, well, I guess I'd have to put my life back together and, and try to see if I could still trust. And she said, yes, that's right, and then what? And she said, well, I guess I would raise my kid. And her mom talked her through her worst possible fear. And you know what Betsy realized? God would still care about me. God would still love me. God would still walk with me through the most unthinkable storm imaginable. See, at the end of the day, her fear wasn't from the reality that her husband might die because the reality, that reality is true for all of us. Her fear was stirred up by the fact that that she didn't have the faith to trust God in the midst of an overwhelming storm. I'm not saying that we welcome those storms. I'm not saying we're gleeful in the midst of loss and trial and hardship and pain. But as Jesus did that day for the disciples, he spoke peace. But more than that, he reminded them, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And so the call is to trust God. To trust God who is, as Hebrews 6 says, a sure and steady anchor of our soul in the midst of the most violent, uncontrollable circumstances. There's this passage in Isaiah 26 that says that the one who leans on God, who depends and trusts on God, will be kept in his perfect peace. Listen, I don't know what's going on in your lives right now, and I don't know how much longer it's going to go, but I know that the Lord can uphold you in his perfect peace. As we read in Philippians 4, Five and seven. Listen, the Lord is at hand. That means the Lord is close. He is near to you. And so in the midst of that, you can not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving, as you let your requests be made known to God. What happens? That same peace of God that Jesus spoke over the storm, that same peace of God, a peace that surpasses all understanding, that will guard your hearts, it will guard your minds through faith in Jesus Christ, and so trust him this morning. So there are external storms going on in the world around us, and there are more what I would call internal storms, storms on the inside. Turn, turn now to Mark chapter 5. Here we're going to read about a man that, that is oppressed by a demonic force, a force of evil. We've talked about the work of the enemy the last few weeks. This man is being torn apart on the inside. Just as there are angels working for God's kingdom of light, there are demons at work in this world for the kingdom of darkness. And they are warriors of darkness spreading lies and sin and seeking to undermine God's purpose and God's people. And there are demonic powers influencing our world and the lives of people probably more than we know through subtle attacks of, of temptation, deception, accusations. And sometimes if a person fully gives themselves to this evil, as we see here in the passage, some people can become overtaken, oppressed, possessed by an indwelling, indwelling presence of darkness. And we read about this, this poor, poor man that is, is 
He's in the grip, in the grip of evil, and he cannot control it. Listen to what God's word says in Mark 5, verse 1. They've gotten through the storm. They arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It says that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that was happening. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. But he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This powerful story that admittedly is a little bit more odd and more difficult to figure out than the one we just read, right? But they land on the sea. And, and there's this region called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. This is a multicultural region with, with Jews and Gentiles and Romans and, and, and people from all over the Mediterranean world living in this Decapolis region. And there's a heavy Greek Hellenistic influence, hence the, the, the pigs being herded, which wouldn't have happened in a strictly Jewish community. But Jesus steps out of the boat. He's immediately confronted by a man who Mark says has an unclean spirit. It's his way of describing a demon. And this man, if you can picture this, is living amongst the caves, the limestone caves, the cliffs. This was the place outside of the neighborhoods and the cities where people were buried, the dead were buried. And this man was loud, he was disruptive, he was violent. And, and the demon, demons that are in him, you might say, are hell-bent on destruction, hell-bent on destroying this man. The people in the community had tried to control the evil. They tried chaining him and shackling him, but they were unable, literally unable to bind him up. We read there in verses 3 and 4 that he would break the chains, break the shackles. This demon's wild energy and, 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 and the disregard for pain it was causing the man meant he broke free of whatever they were tried to bind him with. And so now this man is living in seclusion, living in a graveyard, living in complete isolation. And with no one else around to harm him, what happens? The demons start harming the man himself, and he's cutting himself. Jesus gets out of the boat, and this bloody, wild, uncontrollable man runs up to Jesus. Runs up to Jesus. And the devil, the demons inside of him, 
are possessing him to the point where, where he is now dominated. He has lost control. What is going on inside of him is beyond his ability to control. Even the people outside of him can't control it. And there's an evil in this man that cannot be restrained. It cannot be contained. And before we go on to unpack the rest of the story and see Jesus healing, let's just stop there for a minute, friends, because there is evil around us and and even inside of us that, that we cannot control on ourselves. And evil is a very real part of our reality. And despite our current culture's ability to re, to, or desire to redefine and, and to recategorize, evil is in our world and we cannot ignore it. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, or another way to translate that is deliver us from the evil one. As, as we've said, demons, these rebellious angels, are God's enemies. They are opposing his purpose. And, and the devil, one of these created spiritual beings, is, is leading these unclean spirits And just as as there are good angels at work in the world, there are wicked angels at work in the world. And if that's not obvious to you that that evil is at work, you may not be clearly opening and looking. And again, you can look outside, but we can also look inside at who we are and and what we are outside of Christ. I was talking with a young man recently. He's not a Christian. He's seeking. He's hungry. He's asking question after question after question. And And I said to him, this, this, this young man didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't grow up at church, has recently been visiting and figuring it out and getting into the Word. I said, do you remember the very first time you, you began to be interested in, in God? I said, what was it that initially stirred your curiosity for Christianity? And he said, I could no longer deny how much evil there was in the world. And he said, I, I just began to be confronted with the evil in the world around us. And he said, and I just knew that if there was this great evil, that there must be an opposing force. There must be an opposing force of good. And he said, and, and I'm feeling drawn to that. Isn't that interesting? We often think that the presence of evil in the world is an argument that would undermine the existence of God. For this young man, he's saying there, there must be a God. There must be something good. There must be something other than the path of evil that I'm seeing in the world. Now, I don't believe that we should make the mistake of overemphasizing the presence or the activity or the power of the devil, or that you should blame everything on him. But I also don't think we should make the opposite mistake of downplaying or ignoring the influence of the devil in our world, even in our own lives. Wayne Grudem says that in the New Testament we see, quote, that Satan is thought of as the originator of lies, murder, deception, false teaching, and sin generally. And so, Grudem says, it seems reasonable to conclude that the New Testament wants us to understand some degree of demonic influence in nearly all wrongdoing and sin that occurs today. Listen, demonic influence and sinful urges are at work. Powerful forces in our lives. And and the devil is involved, and these things cannot be controlled in our own hearts, in our own lives, by our own efforts. Right? We saw in the story, in this story of demonic influence, of the presence of evil manifested in a personal way, that there are times in which, despite our best efforts, evil cannot be contained. And again, we can think of horrible instances of evil in the world, but we can also, like this man, just think about the storms inside of us, uncontrollable, uncontrollable things inside of us. Some of those internal storms, like I said before, could be temptation, battling with sin 
Could be in your own, your own battle with fear or guilt or shame. Could be a, a level of stress or anxiety or loneliness that you cannot control. It could be a, a battle with, with greedy urges or anger or apathy or arrogance or depression or frustration that you say, I've tried. I've tried to do all the right things and do all the good things and I've prayed and I've read my Bible and I've confessed it and I can't control these sinful urges. Now look, you can't just blame Satan Right? Ultimately, we are responsible for our own sinful actions despite his influence in our world. The book of James says that it's our own desires that lure us away into sin. And, and you can try to put blocks on your phone. You can have your spouse keep you accountable. You can do your best to chain up those sinful urges and, if you will, shackle those selfish desires. But, but ultimately, the rebellion in our hearts outside of Christ is something too powerful for us. We need a power greater than the devil, greater than our own sin, greater than our own temptation. We need a power greater than the evil in this world. We need something outside of this world to control the storms of sin within us. And that's what we see happening here in verse 6. That this power that will come, that the demon knows is there, right? The demon we see falls down before Jesus. He's crying out, recognizing there's an authority and there's a power greater than him in the presence of Jesus. And these demons cry out, what are you here to do with me, Jesus, son of God? Swear to me by God that you won't torture me. See, see the demons are terrified at the presence of Jesus. Jesus, we read in verse 8, was casting out, commanding the unclean spirit to leave. He's exercising his power and his authority over the demon. The demon is now responding because he, know, he knows that this power of God manifest on earth has the ability to destroy us. And then something a bit peculiar happens in verse 9. Jesus asked the demon its, its name, which seems like, okay, Jesus, not the time for like chit-chat and polite conversation. Just cast the demon out and let's, let's show your power, Right? But Jesus is asking the name because he knows that demons are personal beings and that when evil affects an individual, it's personal. It's personal for this man. And Jesus wants to know who he's dealing with. The man replies, speaking for the demons. They're basically acting as one, right? This evil force has so indwelled the man's heart that they're speaking as one. And the, the demon calls himself legion. Now, legion was a word used to describe a Roman military unit. In the army, it was a unit containing up to 6,000 men. We don't know exactly how many demons were there, but the point is, this man has been, has been oppressed by an army of evil demons. And now, understanding the situation more clearly, Jesus is going to act to drive out this evil force inside of the man. It's interesting, in verses 10 to 12, something peculiar happens. The demons start begging Jesus... They know what's about to happen. They know that, that, this, that this son of God is not going to allow them to stand. They start begging him, look, don't send us out of the region, out of the country. Send us into this herd of pigs. Now, this is very odd. What in the world is going on here? Okay, listen. Demons, like angels, are spiritual beings who have what we would call a spiritual body. Not a physical body. They have a, a spiritual body. Body. But the demons, although they are indwelling this, this man, and although they don't need to dwell in a physical body, they don't want to be disembodied. In other words, these demons don't want to just be cast out and be floating around. They want to embody something or someone. As it says in Luke's gospel, they beg Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. Now, why is that? Well, what do they do as soon as they are sent into the pigs and control the pigs? What do they do? They destroy the pigs, right? Demons 
are bent on destruction. And see, with, with, with no one else around, when they had possessed the man with no one else around to harm, what do they do? They harm the man. When, when they're in the pigs, what do they do? They destroy the pigs. They are begging Jesus because they, they want to destroy. That's, that's what evil does. It destroys life. Now, of course, the, the better question is not maybe why did the demons want to go into the pigs. It's why did Jesus allow it, right? Like that was a lot of good bacon that just went into the water. We don't know exactly. Maybe Jesus wanted a dramatic demonstration. Look, the evil has left this man. We can see now it's gone to the pigs. The pigs are destroyed. The evil is gone. Maybe Jesus wanted a dramatic demonstration of what he was about to do. You think, well, what about the owners of the pigs? Like a little bit in, 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 uh, inconsiderate, you know, not, not great financial investment there on behalf of those herders. I, I don't know why Jesus did it this way, why he allowed the demons to destroy the herd, but, but what we can say is this. It was, it was the devil, not Jesus, who brought destruction on the man and then on the pigs. Now, the Lord allowed it, right? And we know that he does not allow anything or ordain anything by accident. And so he must have had a purpose for the pigs, for the herd, for the whole region of the, the Decapolis that heard about it. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was to spread the word of his power. We don't know. But back to a minute, back for a minute to this idea of the demons begging Jesus. They begged Jesus, don't send us out into the abyss. And I found this very interesting. In fact, if you, if you look at the story that we just read, it's kind of a theme in the story. It comes up several times. The demons beg Jesus. In verse 17, the townspeople beg Jesus to leave. In verse 18, the man begs Jesus to let him go with him. Be- begging is a very interesting concept, right? You, some of you have kids at home that beg for things. Maybe you remember as a kid begging for, you know, extra, extra time before bed or begging for a snack or, be- you know, begging to, to borrow the car. But as adults, we don't really beg a whole lot, do we? Right? Like if you have an, a boss who's consistently making you beg, you're probably just going to quit and go work somewhere else, right? Begging is kind of a humiliating thing. When you beg, you are basically putting yourself under someone else's authority, right? Like, so if I'm before a judge, you know, facing some, time, some kind of, of, of prison sentence, I'm more than happy to beg, you know what I mean? Like I will beg under the authority of that judge, right? Like if, some, if somehow fiction and nonfiction cross paths, and Darth Vader shows up, and he's got me in that death grip, that chokehold. Like, I'm going to beg Darth Vader, right? His power is more than me. I'm going to submit to him. No problem. I will beg. But short of, like, being before a judge or being before Darth Vader, there's not a whole lot of situations where I'm begging, right? Because begging is an admission that, like, you're above me. You have control over me. I'm submitting to you. I'm at your mercy. And that's what, time and time again, the devil, this man, the townspeople do. They're begging Jesus. They're acknowledging his power is greater than them. See, the demons have no doubt who the Son of God is. They know he's in charge of them. And they know that ultimately they're submitted to him. Jesus has the authority to do whatever he, he would command. And so as we are confronted with this uncontrollable evil, as we are confronted with this storm of sin and temptation and brokenness in our own hearts, we have to come to the point of admitting that we cannot control the storm within us, that we need a power beyond ourselves. We need to submit to the power of God, submit to Christ and His power and His authority over our lives, over evil. See, God is sovereign over all things, listen, including sin and the devil and evil. God gives permission to these things, but they submit to him. 
And so as we said, while at times the attack of the enemy, the experience of sin in our lives, at times the manifestation of evil in your home, in your family, in your heart, in your community, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel beyond your ability to control because it is beyond your ability to control, but it's not beyond God's. Amen? And so when the storms of life are raging, whether it be outside of you or inside of you, when it feels like there are days in which this evil is going to destroy you, and maybe not literally, but, but maybe spiritually, emotionally, I, I'm just an empty shell inside. And I imagine the man in the story felt that way. To the degree that he still had his own feelings, he, he was basically dead. But yet God has power, and he can destroy, and he can bring us freedom. Listen, look at, look at what 1 John 3, 8 says. Why, why did Jesus come to earth? Couldn't be any more clear than this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Of course, one day he will come again, fully and finally, putting to death all evil, all demonic influence. But even now, Jesus is at work in our hearts, in the church, through the proclamation of the gospel, destroying the works of the devil. We remember this passage from from Hebrews chapter 2, from last fall right? As children, we share in flesh and blood. So Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through the death of Christ, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And through the death of Jesus on the cross, he delivers all those, all of us who through fear of death have been subject to lifelong slavery. See, listen, while the evil inside of you, the sin inside of you, the destruction of the world feels like something you can't control, Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil. And so the call this morning for those who are in Christ is to be reminded, to be reassured of the power that Jesus have, has in your life. And if you have come to Christ, if you put faith in him as Savior, as Rescuer, Remember that that's not just for eternity, that that's now. That's for your sinful patterns now. That's for your guilt and shame and loneliness and fear and, and frustration and family struggles and parenting struggles and marriage dysfunction. That, that's for all that you have now he has come to rescue. And for those that are here that are all too familiar with the darkness in the world around us, that are all too familiar with the darkness of your own heart, and you've not yet come to a place where you would say, I submit to you, rescue me. The call this morning is to know that you have a Savior, one who can rescue you out of darkness, who can bring forgiveness and hope and eternal life, who can control what is uncontrollable in you. And so we're reminded of this great promise in James 4, 7, that as we walk in faith, as we walk with Christ, as we trust him in the midst of the storms, the Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Again, that recognition of, of, of he's an authority over me, he has power beyond me. I submit to you, God. I resist the devil. I resist the evil temptation. And what happens? When we submit to God and resist the devil, the Bible says in James 4, 7, that he will flee. Hold on to that hope, the God who brings peace in the midst of these storms. But before we wrap up and and sing a final song, can we just look very briefly at this closing section? Because after this profound miracle happens, the man is freed, then the commotion really starts, right? The demon's gone, the man calms down, he puts his clothes on, he stops yelling, but then all the people from the surrounding area, they come in. The herdsmen tell everybody what's happened to their pigs, to the man, and they come in to see what's happened. And they come in and they see this man who everybody knows about, he's now sitting calmly, he's in his right mind, there's been this dramatic transformation. 
And rather than rejoice, rather than the people in the Decapolis give thanks, they're afraid. Why are they afraid of Jesus? Because they know that anything that can control this evil that was in this man's heart is more powerful than we could ever imagine. And they're afraid. They're afraid because they're not ready to give themselves to Christ. And they don't know what he's capable of doing next. And so they basically beg him, leave, go. Before you do anything else, good or bad, we want you to leave our region. And so Jesus, preparing to leave, preparing to get on the boat with his disciples, he's not going to stick around if he's not wanted. And this man who's been freed, who's been healed, who's been cleansed, comes up to Jesus, and again, he begs. He says, Jesus, please let me go with you. Please let me go with you. I, w- I want to be close to you. I, w- I want to stay with you. I want your healing and your power to continue to influence my life, right? See, this, for this man, he's not afraid like the rest of the people from the region. Why? Because he's personally been touched. He's personally been healed. He knows that Jesus' power is not something to be afraid of. It's something to press into, to rest into. And Jesus says something very interesting in verse 19. Look at what he says. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your own friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. We've read how in other places in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is trying to keep quiet who he is and what he's done. He's now in in this, this multicultural, secular region where he's like, just go home, tell everybody. I'm not worried about it. This man wants to stay with Jesus, but Jesus says, no, you can serve me better by going home and, and telling your own friends. That's what the ESV says in verse 19. It's, it's hard to translate that. The New American Standard says, tell your own people. The NIV says, tell your own family. Here's what's going on here, real quick. The Greek text actually doesn't have a noun. It just says, go home and tell your own. It just says, tell your own. Tell the people who know you. Tell the people that you belong to. Tell them the great things that God has done for you. See, this man has this amazing testimony over evil. But if he comes with Jesus, he's just going to be sharing his story with a bunch of strangers. And Jesus says, no, you go home and tell them, tell, tell what I've done to your own, to your own people. To people that know you, that will be unable to deny the freedom and the release and the healing that you've experienced. See, friends, listen, when you experience a storm in your life, God calls you to tell others what he's done. And very often, that's your own, your own friends, your own family. Now, praise God for people who are sent to foreign, foreign regions, foreign lands, to other countries, to the unreached. And we should pray for those that go to the unreached. We should pray for those that go to other nations and other cultures. And, and honestly, some of us need to pray and prepare. And some of us need to raise sons and daughters to be able to go into the farthest reaches of the earth. And I think about the Mebergs, who are missionaries in France, who this morning are in a baptism service, baptizing 13 people who previously were Muslims. And now they have been radically transformed. Pray pray for those brothers and sisters. This morning they're being baptized. And like this man, their transformation is radical. But for many of us, the most significant place where God can use us is amongst our own. Our own family. Our own friends. Our own co-workers. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I don't know about you, but sometimes my own friends and family and neighbors can be the hardest to tell. Right? Because they know you. They know your faults. They know your failures. But God will open doors as you step out in faith. And so as the worship team comes, can we stand in faith? Can we sing to God? Can we be reminded that, yes, there are storms that are raging. Yes, there are storms that are raging in the world around us and in our own hearts. And even for believers, we're not exempt from the trials and struggles of this earth. 
but we have an anchor for our soul. We have a God who speaks peace, a God who meets us, who frees us.